you ever get the sense that something is missing in your life? I think marketers know something about that feeling in us, and uh, they're really good at capitalizing on it. So, for example, Apple has come out with a new iPad, and you know, watching the latest iPad commercial, it's, it's fascinating. It's not just telling you about the iPad, but instead you, you see shots of people you know, like flying in hot air balloons using their iPads, and they're like DJing this, this really cool party uh, you know, with their iPads, and you have these beautiful families talking to each other through their iPads. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I use an iPad, it's nothing like that. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that what Apple is selling here is, is much more than simply a product. They know that we want adventure and meaning and relationships in life. And if we get this little device, it can all be yours. Or, you know, Apple is sort of the cool version of that. On the other end of the spectrum are uh, infomercials. You remember those? Um, I, I recently came across an infomercial for a, a hair product. And I think you've seen these before. You know, you have the, the before shot, right? The, the, the guy is kind of balding. And not only that, but he's overweight, he's dressed kind of shabby, uh, he, he's doing terrible at his job, he can't, can't make any sales, he, he's lonely, and then, and then he goes swimming, and then when he comes up out of the water, the hair is like a mess all over his face, and it's just embarrassing. But then he gets some hair, and now you have the after shot, right? His hair looks great, and he's lean, and he's ripped. And he's dressed really sharply. He's, he's making all these sales. He's getting promotions at work. His kids, like, are proud of him. And then, of course, he, he's running through the beach. He dives in the water. He comes up, and his hair is just perfect, you know, just falling uh, on his shoulders. And, uh, the, the, these commercials work because marketers know that we all sense that, boy, something is missing. Something is wrong with my life. And, and we want an answer. We want the solution. We can kind of poke fun at this infomercial, but that doesn't change the fact that we've all got problems. From loneliness to, to, to broken relationships to, to shame, insecurity, fear. And we are, we're all looking for, for a kind of salvation from our problems. Isn't that interesting? As good as things might be, and things are really good so often, yet we all instinctively know that still something is wrong with our lives. Something is wrong with the world. And day after day, we continue to hold out hope that something, anything, from the, from the trivial like a gadget or, or more hair, to, to the more significant, like a, a new job, a new relationship, the, the latest election, that, that one of these things will provide the salvation that we're looking for. Well, is there true salvation? One that answers our, our deepest, most fundamental needs? This morning, we're going to continue our series through the book of Romans and, and really looking at the big picture of our lives, you know, answering sort of the, the biggest problems that we face. And, and we've come to chapters 3 and 5, where, where Paul 
presents the answer to that question that we're asking. And the answer is that true salvation does exist. God has provided salvation for humanity, and it's one that answers our deepest problems. And yet, it is not the salvation that we were expecting. It makes all the other things that we're pursuing seem so superficial and shallow. And yet, nonetheless, the question that we have to answer is, is this the salvation that we want? Is this salvation that you want? So let's, let's take a look at our text. And I'm really going to read all three chapters this morning. So, so it would be helpful if you would just open your Bibles and flip to Romans chapter 3, verse 1. And let me just give you the outline for, for the sermon up front. I have four points. Four points. First of all, true salvation exposes our true need. True salvation exposes our true need. Second, true salvation provides true righteousness. It provides true righteousness. Third, true salvation brings true reconciliation. And then fourth, true salvation brings true life. And and as you can tell from that outline, what I'm claiming here is that this section of Scripture is about the most important thing in the world, right? What Christianity has to say about how we can be saved. We're going to be covering a lot of text, and, and these texts cover some of the most profound truths that are out there, and we don't have a ton of time. So if you have questions about anything that I say this morning, if you want to explore further what it is that Christianity actually teaches, um, please come talk to me at the door afterwards. I'd love to set up a time just to, to meet with you, to, to work with you more deeply into, into these texts. So, so first, let's think about how true salvation exposes our true need. Let's, let's look at Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been trusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood increases God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God 
before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, last time we were in Romans uh, chapters 1 and 2, we were looking at how Paul confronts us with the fundamental problem that all humanity faces, both Jew and Gentile. And, And that problem is the curse of sin. And therefore, as all of us, all of those who are under the curse of sin, we are also under the wrath of God. No matter how religious or irreligious, no matter how educated or uneducated, no matter how moral or immoral, all of humanity is under the wrath of God because of sin. And yet what we see here in the opening of chapter 3 is just how offensive this idea is, especially to Paul's Jewish audience. Uh, you hear the objections that they're raising to being lumped in with the rest of the world, right? Uh, if all people are under the wrath of God, then, then what advantage is there in being a Jew? You know, if Jews are under the wrath of God, then, then does that mean that God has been unfaithful to his promises? And yet for each of these objections, Paul doesn't back down. Yes, though all humanity is sinful, that doesn't cancel the privilege that the Jewish people have had, particularly in receiving God's word. No, in judging the Jewish people, God is not being unfaithful. It's man who is unfaithful. God is always acting according to his word, and he has always promised to judge sin. By the time we get to verse 5 here, you can tell that Paul's objectors are beginning to lose touch with reality uh, and, and raising objections that they don't even believe in, right? If God displays his righteousness in judging people, then isn't sin producing a good result? then why am I being punished? You know, the irony, of course, in asking that is that they are condemning Paul's teaching as wrong. But if they really believe that God has no right to punish sin, then why would it matter if Paul is going around teaching something that's wrong? Right? Their very argument presupposed the truth that they were denying. As sophisticated as their arguments were, they could not escape the truth that we live in a moral universe. In our heart of hearts, we know that one day God will judge the evil of this world. And as Paul points out, any kind of contradictory arguments that we might present merely just confirm the fact that we stand condemned and under the curse of sin. And so we come to this amazing conclusion here in verses 9 through 18. What is the testimony of Scripture about the human condition? There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, again, the Jewish reader listening to this might have said, wait a minute, Paul. The passage you just quoted there is from Psalm 14, which is talking about the fool that says in his heart, there is no God. That's not me. I believe in God, right? That's talking about the Gentile world out there. That is not talking about me. Okay, but notice what Paul does. He he tightens the circle there in the next verse. In verses 13 and 14, he quotes 
a number of psalms that are written by David about his enemies. It's their mouths that are full of evil and cursing and death. And as we know from the Old Testament, many of David's enemies were Jews. And then to seal the case in verses 15 through 17, Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 59, describing a people who are swift to shed blood, who walk in sin and ruin and misery. And Isaiah's audience is none other than the people of Judah, the the Jewish people. There is no escaping that this is talking about them. Verse 18 then, we get the summary statement, the conclusion, that the root evil of our hearts, there is no fear of God before their eyes. We fear all kinds of other things, but we do not fear God. You know, in, in the way that Paul has laid these verses out, he's not only communicating the extent of the corruption of sin, you know, from our throats to our mouths to our lips to our tongues to our feet to our eyes to, to our paths. No, he's also revealing that, that Scripture testifies that all humanity, Jew and Gentile, are under the curse of sin. In other words, this is about you and this is about me. None of us are righteous, not even one. We have turned away. Our throats are open graves. Our tongues practice deceit. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Our paths are marked by ruin and misery. There is no fear of God before our eyes. If that's true, then what is our deepest need? It's not to get other people fixed. It's not to get society fixed. No, it is the sin in us. And this goes far, far beyond sort of superficial behavior and, and circumstances, it, it really goes down to our, our beings, our hearts, that, that we are stained, corrupted by sin. And we hear the devastating results there in verse 19. In light of God's perfect law, in light of our sin, all of us stand guilty. The whole world is held accountable to God. There is a day that is coming when our lives are going to be laid open before the holy God, and every mouth will be shut. You know, today we're we're so quick to to rationalize, to excuse, to justify our sins, but on that day, God's justice and goodness will be so obviously plain and right, and our sin will be so obviously sinful that no mouth will dare to speak. God will execute his righteous judgment on that day. In order for us to understand the salvation that God offers, we first have to come to understand our true need. We live in a world that is full of misleading counsel, that that, that tries to define what we need in so many other ways, right? What, What you really need is financial security so that you can retire comfortably, so that your family will be safe. What you really need is a new career, And then you'll find your true purpose in life. What you really need is this new political system. And then you're going to be able to go back to the good old days 
and on and on and on. What you believe about what your true need is will shape how you live. It will shape what you give your heart to. And yet all these things fall short because they all fail to address what does this have to do with God? What does financial security have to do with God? What does your pursuit of academics or career or family or leisure or vacations have to do with God? How does it affect how you live in light of who he is? That's the fundamental issue of our lives. And it's when we start to look at our lives in relation to God that we come to see the awful truth. What's wrong is not, is not all those other things. What's wrong is us. We, there is no fear of God before our eyes. We have rejected God. We have lived apart from God. We have gone our own ways. And that has resulted in all kinds of ruin and misery and evil. We have to be convinced that sin is not someone else's problem. We have to be convinced that sin is my problem and your problem. One of the easiest ways to avoid the weight of conviction here is to compare yourself to another. I'm not as bad as that guy. No, that guy deserves God's judgment, but I'm not as bad as him, so I must be okay. Who are you tempted to compare yourself to? That person who hurt you in the past? Religious leaders who were caught in their hypocrisy? The drug addict on the street who has made a mess of his life? This is what the Jewish people were doing. As long as they kept comparing themselves to the Gentile people, they felt pretty good about themselves. But the true standard that God measures us by is not one another. No, it's him, himself, his perfect holiness. In our sin, All of humanity stands on equal ground, guilty and under the wrath of God. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And it's in light of that need that we see what our true salvation is. Look with me here in in verse 21. Point number two. True salvation provides true righteousness. Romans 3.21. Maybe one of the most important paragraphs in the Bible. But now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? 
Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, Faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. <clears throat> so how will God save people who have sinned and fallen short of his perfect glory? Well, we see the answer in verse 24 of chapter 3. He will save them by justifying them freely, graciously, through the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ. 
What does, that, what does that mean that he justifies them? That he justifies sinners? Well, to be justified means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against a person because of their sins. For God to justify means that through Jesus Christ, God now declares that a sinner is no longer guilty, but is now righteous, righteous. And right away, you should be asking, how can this be? How can a God be a righteous judge and at the same time justify the wicked? How can God be a just judge and let murderers and liars and adulterers and cheaters and cowards and traitors and all kinds of other sinners walk free? The problem of a sinful world, the problem of all religions, the problem of God in dealing with a sinful race hinges on this question. How can a holy God remain holy while at the same time justifying the wicked? And the Bible's answer is given in these words. God presented Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. In love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. Unlike the rest of humanity, Jesus Christ obeyed his heavenly father perfectly throughout his life, even to the point of giving his life up in death. There on the cross, Jesus Christ offered his life as a sacrifice. Do you know what a sacrifice is? Jesus Christ was killed in the place of sinners, taking the condemnation, the the judgment of our sin in our place. And by that sacrifice, the wrath of God against sin was fully satisfied, fully paid for, fully atoned, so that now sinners might be redeemed, forgiven, justified. See here the contrast between us and God. We, on the one hand, who so easily dismiss sin, who so easily rationalize it, who who, who so easily wink at it, and God, on the other hand, who will not forgive the smallest sin apart from the death of his infinitely worthy Son. The God who will account for every unpunished sin in us only in the agony and suffering of his innocent Son. The cross of Jesus Christ is as much about God's unwavering justice as it is about his infinite mercy towards sinners. By his sacrifice, Jesus Christ satisfied the justice of God. And having exhausted the condemnation that stood against us, there was no longer any more reason for Christ to remain captive to death. So God raised them from the dead, proving his victory over sin. And now we see in verse 22 that that righteousness of God, which once only revealed how far short we fell, it now comes to sinners as a gift through faith. In Jesus Christ, for all who believe, 
through faith in Christ, by being united to Christ by faith, sinners, sinners can be declared righteous, justified. What this means is that no matter who you are today, no matter how much sin you have brought into this room with you today, you can be declared righteous by God through Jesus Christ. God has provided a way for you so that when the day of judgment comes, you stand before God, God looks at your life, along with all of your failures, all of your sins, all of your evil, and he declares not guilty, righteous, because you belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to my son. And all this can be yours for free, for free. That's Paul's point in emphasizing faith. How do we receive the salvation? Not by working for it, not by earning it, but by receiving it by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian here this morning, know that Christianity is not trying to sell you anything. And that people try to convince you of your problems in order to sell your product. No, that's not, that's not what's going on here. In the gospel, you have a God who declares to you your deepest need, not so that you can do something for him, but so that you can stop to try to do, uh, stop trying to do any stuff for him. That you will finally let go of your self-sufficiency or your self-righteousness and instead go to him for all that you need. The gospel is not about us doing our best for God, but it is about God doing his best for us through Jesus Christ. This salvation can be yours today if you will turn away from your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ. That's what faith is all about. That's why Paul brings up Abraham. Through Abraham, we learn three things about what it means to receive Christ by faith. Here we are in chapter 4, and these are kind of three sub-points within this point. So, so first, faith excludes all boasting, right? Faith excludes all boasting. If ever there was someone that the Jewish people believed had obeyed God and earned God's favor, it was Abraham. And yet, if Abraham had earned something before God so that now God owed him something, then Abraham would have a legitimate reason to boast before God. But that very thought should be problematic, right? Uh, How can a sinful creature who deserves God's judgment, who owes all that he has to God to begin with, boast of anything before his his creator, his God? That, that, That thought is impossible. Instead, Paul takes us back to the words of the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The only righteousness that Abraham knew was one that came to him not by anything that he did, but as a gift, by faith. It's the same thing that David describes there in verse 7. Anyone who has known forgiveness, anyone whose sin God is not counting against them, that person is blessed. He's blessed. Notice, that person is not paid. That person is not you know, justly compensated. No, no. Forgive, if forgiveness were a matter of works, then, then there would be no reason to talk about blessing. But, but what the Bible says is that blessed 
are the people whose sins are forgiven. Being saved by faith, therefore, really means being saved on the basis of faith alone. Yes, yes, faith transforms every sphere of our lives. We're going to talk more about that next week, how faith continues on in the life of obedience. But that only happens when you recognize that the basis of your salvation is Jesus Christ received by faith alone. So if your faith in Christ actually has resulted in you growing more proud and boastful, if you find yourself looking down on others, if you find yourself complaining about what you deserve, then perhaps you don't understand yet what it means to be saved by faith alone. Now, if you contributed nothing to your own salvation, why would you look down on anybody else, saved or unsaved? If you believe that your salvation has come to you entirely free and gracious, why would you complain about what you deserve? The kind of faith that saves is a faith that utterly repudiates any attempt to commend ourselves to God apart from Jesus Christ. Faith is, is taking, receiving, accepting, trusting in what Christ has done for us and banking on that alone. Faith excludes all boasting. Second, faith includes all people. That's Paul's point there in his discussion about circumcision. As much as the Jews prided themselves in their physical obedience to the law, especially in, in ceremonial matters like circumcision, Paul points out the timing of Abraham's justification, namely that, that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. And the reason that's significant is that now that same righteousness comes to us on the, not on the basis of culture or ceremony or tradition, but on the basis of faith alone. In other words, in saving Abraham through faith, God opens the door for, for his promise to the nations to be fulfilled that through Abraham, God will bring blessing to all the nations. If you're on the fence this morning about Christianity, what you need to know is that there are no kind of prerequisites for you for coming to Christ. You don't have to wait to meet with a pastor. You don't have to go through some kind of ceremony. You don't have to clean up your life first before you place your, your trust in Christ. No, salvation comes by faith alone. And therefore, even today, you can be declared righteous before God. And then third, faith believes in God's word. That's what we see there in verses 18 through 25. Faith believes in God's word. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And yet as Abraham looked around him, he's still waiting for the first, for the first person of that promise. Not only that, he's 100 years old. Sarah's womb is, is dead and barren. In spite of all their tries, all their waiting. And yet, even in the face of, of all that contrary evidence, Abraham believes. Abraham believes God, being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he promised. That's what faith is, believing in God's word. And this is true for us this morning. God's word has come to us. God promises 
that he will credit righteousness for any who will repent of their sins and place their trust in Jesus. And yet every day, every day, in spite of God's promises, we are faced with all kinds of contrary evidence, aren't we? Right? Financial hardship, chronic illness, our own repeated sinfulness and selfishness, broken relationships, the unbelief of people around us, persecution, the failure of close Christian friends. These and a thousand more instances whisper all kinds of doubts into our ears. Can God really forgive you? Is the gospel really true? You did what? And you call yourself righteous? Are you sure that God is not still mad at you? In in the face of all your struggles, in the face of all your sins, what other people do and say, the question is, will you listen to these voices? Or will you trust in what God has said? Will you believe God's word? The most important issue that we face at the dawning of each new day is, will this be a day in which I believe the word of God? Or will this be a day in which I give way to unbelief? And for most of us, unbelief doesn't mean that we renounce our faith. No, more likely, it just means that we begin adding other things to our faith, right? I trust in Jesus, but let me hedge my bets. Let me find my satisfaction and my security and my meaning in some other things as well. It's not that it's wrong to enjoy those other things. Often they're good gifts from God. But it's when we so easily choose to to enjoy and to love and to trust in those things rather than enjoying and loving and trusting in God. That's when those things turn into idols. It's It's the rather than God that gets us into trouble. So, so what are the things you're, you're tempted to place your hope in besides Jesus? Well, w- one way to kind of figure that out is just by asking yourself the question, what is it that I'm really disappointed in in life? What is it that has really disappointed me in life? Your career? Your children? Your singleness? Society in general? some aspect of this church. Whatever it is, if you're dealing with kind of deep, disturbing disappointment and discouragement, there's a good chance that there's an element of rather than God that's taken place there, where you're looking to those things rather than God. Friends, the way out of all of this is by faith. Believe in what God has said. Chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus Christ was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification, our righteousness. Will you believe? And if you believe and have been justified, then chapter 5 is for you. Point number three, true salvation. True salvation brings true reconciliation. Look, look with me here, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And and I love what Luther says here. He says, you know, the apostle here is not so much speaking as he's almost singing these verses. I'm not going to sing it, but but we can read it together. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that the suffering, that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've been talking about justification. That's, that's a real legal term, you know, a picture of like a courtroom. Um, but, but salvation is far more than just a legal procedure. Rather, it is about something deeply personal, reconciliation with God, which means that our sin was also deeply personal. Our sin was about being enemies with God. In our sin, we were those who stood opposed to God in hatred, and God was justly full of wrath against us. But now, having been justified, we have peace with God. All hostility has ceased. And and what now marks our relationship with God is an astonishing, everlasting love. This passage is, is here to help us marvel at God's great love for us. We see God's radical love expressed on the cross of Jesus Christ there in verses 6 through 8. You know, we can fathom the, the possibility of someone performing that greatest act of love and giving his life for, for someone else, for someone who, who maybe earned it or deserved it, a, a good man. And yet God demonstrates his love in a way that totally surpasses the greatest human love. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Apart from any merit, apart from any good in us, God demonstrates his love to those who hated him and opposed him. And that's how we know God loves us. That's how we can be assured that God loves you. He loved you on your worst day while you were a sinner. And we know this love not only by faith in Christ, you know, in in that act in history, but we also know it experientially. That's what we're seeing there in in verse 5. God pours out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you know something of this. God has given you his spirit. He has given you a new heart so that you have known something of the assurance of God's love for you particularly. What Paul here is emphasizing 
is that Christianity is not simply a, a list of historical facts to believe in. No, there is that, but, but there's also a day-by-day relationship with God, with His Spirit dwelling in us and us walking with Him in love. And know that as you walk with Him in love, that your knowledge of God's love here on earth is only the beginning. Because having been reconciled to God, we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It means that God doesn't simply tolerate us, you know, leave us alone now that our sins are forgiven. No, he, he will one day return and we will be saved from his wrath and we will be delivered into his glorious kingdom. And all of eternity will be our everlasting enjoyment of God's love for us. Brothers and sisters, this is what salvation is. It's not a, a, a distant legal arrangement. No, it, it is a lover rescuing for himself a bride in order that she might know his love forever. It is a father adopting for himself a family in order that they might know his eternal kindness. It is for creatures like you and me, to be reconciled to our loving Creator in order that we might worship Him and enjoy Him forever. So, don't try to find reconciliation any other way. To reject the gospel is to reject God Himself. You know, if you reject Christ and you say, hey, I'm not going to follow Christ, but tell you what, I'll start coming to church, I'll give money, I'll stop swearing, and, and, and we'll call it even. You know, if you try to cut a deal with God, you're totally ignoring the fact that there is a broken relationship there. Now, God is not just a judge that you have to pay a fine to. No, he is a lover whom we have betrayed. It would be like a husband being unfaithful to his wife, bringing anguish and ruin and misery, and then saying to her, hey, sorry about that, here's $100. Now, can, we be, can we be reconciled? That husband, far from mending the relationship, would actually bring greater harm and separation in the relationship. No, God has provided the way of reconciliation, and that comes through Christ. And if you know Christ, then be assured that you are reconciled to God. That, that, that in the midst of all your suffering, of all your hardships, you serve a God who loves you. And, he, and everything that he brings into your life comes from his loving hand. I don't know what kind of hardships and sorrows you have brought with you this morning, but I want you to hear the truth that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are deeply loved by God. And the cross of Jesus Christ says more to you about his love than any suffering you're going through. And because he loves you, he will use your suffering to bring good purposes in your life. Finally, true salvation brings true life. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all men because all sin. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, 
How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a lot there. What this is, is a summary of human history uh, summarized by two men, Adam and Jesus. Whatever your story is, whatever your background Whatever, whatever ways you were sinned against, whatever ways you sinned, in all the varied ways our stories twist and turn, they are all brought under this one overarching story. We, as human beings, belong to Adam. So what is the story of Adam? Well, Adam was the first man, made by God into a perfect world, given every earthly advantage, every earthly blessing. And yet God gave Adam a command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to the horror of all creation, Adam disobeyed, bringing sin and death into the world. And from that day on, all the futility, all the sorrow, all the guilt, all the shame, all the death that you encounter finds its ultimate source in Adam. And, and from that day, our, our lives, our stories have been a, a reflection of Adam's story. But it's not simply that we imitate Adam's example. I think what Paul is saying here is something far more profound. Yet, yes, we all sin. Yes, we are all guilty for our sins. And yet there is a deeper, more profound sense in which all of us belong to Adam. There's this, there's this sense in which he represents us. And in some mysterious way, his sin has become our sin. And therefore, all of us, all of us are headed for his death. It's because of the story of Adam that we all rightly recognize that something is wrong with the world. I mean, no matter how you dress it up, how you medicate it, how you fill it with vacations and food and distractions, we can't escape the truth that we live in a world that is broken and that ends in death. And we know that this death is more than just a physical death. It is a separation from God, an alienation from Him. And this emptiness and futility extends to every area of our lives. Friends, this, is, this was your story. This may still be your story, but it doesn't have to be the end of your story. For another man has come, Jesus Christ. Jesus arrived into a world broken and cursed by sin he laid aside every heavenly advantage. He entered into a life of rejection and danger and temptation. And yet, unlike Adam, Jesus obeyed God. 
he trusted his heavenly Father even to the point of death, giving his life as a sacrifice for mankind. And through his complete obedience in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ brought righteousness and life into this world. For all those who will belong to Christ, death will no longer reign, sin will no longer reign, but they will reign in eternal life. God is restoring this broken world through Jesus Christ. He is restoring everything that is good and right and beautiful about this world. This is why faith in Christ saves. By faith, God unites us to Jesus so that now we are no longer represented by Adam. We are represented by Jesus. Our our sins are paid for by his death. His life becomes our life. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. Justification, Justification is the declaration that we have been united to Christ and now have his perfect obedience. So friends, that's the story of humanity. It is represented by these two men. There is no middle ground. If you belong to Jesus, then be assured, be joyful, be confident of your justification, of your eternal life, of God's unending love for you. But if you're represented by Adam, then know what awaits you is only condemnation and sin and death. As much as we might try to paint our lives by comparing ourselves to others, by our moral relativism, by our objections and arguments, the reality of human history is that there are only two ways to live. Will you belong to Adam or will you belong to Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for providing a righteousness that we could never accomplish. We thank you for Jesus Christ through whom we sinners can be declared righteous. We thank you that this results in a life of, of love and a life of eternal victory and joy. Oh God, help us to grasp these things. Help us to live in light of these things. Lord, make these things real to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.